Good morning. Looking through the directory. We are a good looking group of people. Uh, Christmas Eve services, Christmas Eve. Um, one thing we're trying to figure out is the time. I guess historically it's often been done at 6 p.m. Um, I'm curious if anybody, and this is, we don't, we're not taking a vote or anything right now, but just curious uh, to learn over the next couple of weeks if anybody has any issue if we were to move it to five. Uh, I know we're going to head to St. Louis after that service uh, for a couple days to, to spend with Carrie's family. So just trying to get a sense of, um, you know, if, if some people are working and five just won't work, I totally understand that. And so it's not a huge issue, but just trying to get a sense of that. So feel free to, to share that with me or with Doug or um, yeah, we'll just go from there. Um, I know I was up here before I came up. Um, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for this season. And it is a season to, uh, to remember and praise you for the greatest gift of all, your Son who came into the world. Lord, I pray for our time this morning as we study your word. As we study a passage that, again, is, is challenging, Lord, that this be edifying to us, that we understand your word better, uh, that it point us to you. Lord, I pray for this holiday season with all the hustle and bustle, that it be a time of joy to enjoy friends and family. Lord, that we be not bogged down by commitments, but just enjoying the season. In Jesus' name, amen. Is there a... It's working is it? Oh, there we go. Thank you guys very much. I have very little technical capabilities with stuff like that, so I appreciate people who do. Um, so thank you guys so much. We did mention we have a, a Christmas party that we're hosting next Saturday, so hope to see you all there. Everyone's invited. You don't need to RSVP or anything. Just show up uh, 5 to 7. You don't have to be there from 5 to 7. Uh, you can show up uh, at 6.59 if you want to. You just know that... You have to leave one minute later, but um, yeah, I'd love to see everybody there. You don't have to bring anything. I guess some people have asked Carrie that. You, Carrie's going to have uh, a few things that she's making. She's a great cook. So we're going to have some desserts and sort of a, a light dinner is uh, how Carrie described it. Um, but like I said, just it's really, it's an open house. Come and go, but love to see you there. A uh, chance to, to see our house for the first time. And uh, so excited to do that. Uh, you can also meet our puppy. Don't let the cuteness deceive you. She's ferocious. She will just... Once we... Uh, Carrie and I are still debating this, but once... I would like to clip the ears, so I think that'll make her look a lot more... Uh, I'm not really going to do that. But, but that's our puppy, Beasley. And... Uh, it's interesting, even, even in a dog, you, you see the fallenness of the world. You don't need to teach a dog to disobey. They just do it. But she's a, she's a great girl. So we're excited to have her. And, uh, if you turn to Isaiah chapter 7, that's where we were last week. Also, I should mention, I, I woke up, I have a little bit of a, I think a head cold or sinuses this morning. So try not to shake hands. Uh, just, I don't, I'm not, I feel fine, but I just... 
just as a precaution, don't want to pass anything along to anyone else, but happy to, to visit with you after the service. Isaiah chapter 7. To give a, a brief recap from last week. We were in the book of Isaiah. It's around the year 735 B.C. And the kingdom of Judah is the home to the chosen people of God. It's the home to Jerusalem and the home to the family line, which ultimately leads to Christ. And a man named Ahaz is the king of Judah. And though they're the chosen people, Ahaz is a sinful king. They have regularly disobeyed and dishonored the Lord. And the first several chapters of the book of Isaiah revolve around Judah's sin. At this time, there's also a lot of uh, military tensions in the region with Assyria being the major threat in the Middle East, posing a threat to the local kingdoms. And so you have two other nations, Israel and Syria, who together have formed an alliance against Assyria. Last week we discussed this, but Israel and Syria try to pressure Judah into an alliance, but Judah will instead opt to pay off the Assyrians for protection. And as a result, Israel and Syria go to war with Judah. Through the prophet Isaiah, King Ahaz is told that the destruction of their oppressors, Israel and Syria, is imminent. We find out from passages like 2 Kings 16, again, that Judah has paid off the Assyrians for protection. Ahaz is told to ask the Lord for a sign. And where we closed last week, Ahaz refuses that sign. And with that, we return to our passage and continue in our Advent series this morning with part two, a sign given. And we're going to begin this week by uh, where we ended last week, and we'll re-examine Ahaz's response to the sign which he's been offered. So Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Ahaz, the king, has been sinful and faithless, but he's given an incredible offer from the Lord. He can basically ask the Lord any time that he wants. He can ask the Lord to reveal himself in a spectacular way. I can't think of another place in the Old Testament where God makes such an offer. And one of the things that I asked last week was, if you were in that situation, what sign would you ask for? For some, maybe it would be to see heaven. Or maybe it would be to see a, a family member or friend who's deceased, raised to life. Or maybe you would ask to be healed from, uh, from a disease or illness or physical infirmity. But whatever it is. But Ahaz instead responds in verse 12. He says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, at first glance, that can appear to be a good thing. I will not put the Lord to the test. 
In the temptation story of Jesus, he talks about not putting the Lord to the test. Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus was asked basically to prove his identity by challenging God, and he doesn't. He points to the scriptures and he says it is written, and he quotes the Old Testament, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. To quote from Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So it can appear as though Ahaz is just being faithful to the commands of scripture. But what's the problem? It's not a violation of that command when the Lord tells you to ask him for a sign. Ahaz says he won't test God, but it's God who has tested Ahaz. And Ahaz failed. Ahaz makes a mistake that has existed since the beginning of sin. Misapplying the word of God. God tells Ahaz to ask for a sign and he balks at it. It's because Ahaz doesn't want a sign. He doesn't care about seeing what God can do. Ahaz has already placed faith in himself and his own industry and paying off the Assyrians for protection. So when he says that he won't put God to the test, in saying that, he's just giving the appearance of faith. In Jesus' day, it was a problem for the Pharisees. They had attached all sorts of laws onto laws and outwardly appeared to be very religious and moral. But you can't fool the Lord. It's easy to say the right things. It's easy to talk the talk. But the Lord knows the heart. And the Lord sees through Ahaz's attempt at outward piety. Verse 13 He's given a response. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you would weary my God also? Ahaz doesn't ask for a sign, but God gives him a sign anyway. The Emmanuel prophecy in this passage is the same verse which is quoted at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. Isaiah 7.14 says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And the Gospel of Matthew adds to the note that that name means God with us. In Isaiah, it's a difficult verse. It's cryptic. Its meaning is disputed. Numerous questions arise. And looking at this verse, we'll examine three of them. First, why is that the sign when Jesus isn't born until 700 years later? I don't take this passage as only referring to Jesus. Don't misunderstand. 
The sign ultimately refers to Jesus, but I believe that the sign has a double fulfillment. The prophecy is given as a sign to Ahaz, and therefore I think that it matters that the sign means something in the day of Ahaz. And as we will see momentarily, I believe that the context of the passage demands that it means something in Ahaz's time. As a general rule, I think we should be weary of biblical interpretations where a verse has no significance to its original audience. And I think that's also an important note about studying prophetic literature in the Bible. But again, when you consider what the present passage says, and you look at the immediate context, it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. What's the meaning of verses 15 and 16? There's no apparent relationship of those verses to the life of Jesus. Yet they have to mean something. We'll examine them more closely in a few moments, but I think that those show that these are relevant to events that happen within Ahaz's lifetime. A second issue to consider from this verse, the word virgin. In English, our word virgin has a pretty straightforward meaning, someone who has never had sexual relations. And that is certainly a significant aspect of the birth of Jesus. Gospel of Luke 131, Mary is told that she's going to have a baby Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. The angel goes on to say that uh, the things that will happen during Jesus' ministry, but in Luke one thirty four, Mary says to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the virginity of Mary matters in the birth story of Christ because it demonstrates a miraculous work of God that the birth of Christ is an entirely divine activity. So when people were reading the Old Testament hundreds of years before Christ, did they read our passage this morning from Isaiah and think that it was referring to a virgin having a baby? Not necessarily. If you've ever ever heard a sermon on that Matthew passage or our Isaiah passage, or if you've ever looked up any of these verses in a study Bible, perhaps you've heard that the, the word that was used in Hebrew can also mean young woman. That's true. The closest example we have in English is probably a word like maiden. That's not really a word over the last, it's become less popular over the last century or so. That's probably the closest English equivalent. A young unmarried woman. Now, in Jewish culture in the 8th century BC, for a young unmarried woman, it would have been assumed that she was a virgin. So that's certainly part of what it meant. But my point is that Isaiah's audience didn't necessarily understand the passage originally as specifically referring to a virgin conception. 
Again, I think that the Hebrew is really getting more at the, the that it's a, a young woman. There is one thing that is interesting about that, though, which is that while it probably means something more akin to young woman in the original Hebrew, by the time the text was translated from Hebrew to Greek, which was still before the time of Christ, the Greek word that they used does kind of more specifically refer to a virgin having a child. So for a Greek reader in Jesus' day, um, the idea of a virgin birth being the sign, um, I think, is more plausible. Third matter with Isaiah 7.14, if there's two fulfillments, then who is Emmanuel and who is the woman? There are several theories about this. Some think that it's referring to King Ahaz's wife and that Emmanuel is his son, Hezekiah. Others think that it's referring to Isaiah's son. There's a theory that Emmanuel in the 8th century BC became a very popular name in the Jewish community and that there were lots of babies named Emmanuel and that was the sign. There's a theory that perhaps it was the son of one of the, uh, one of the officials' wives had a baby during Ahaz's reign and that was the... Several theories. I point that out just to show that it is a difficult passage. But just because a passage in the Bible is difficult doesn't mean that we shouldn't study it. As far as who the first Emmanuel was, we'll have more on that subject next week. But the point that I want to make for right now is that there was a first Emmanuel before Jesus who is the ultimate and greater Emmanuel. As the prophecy continues, Isaiah will elaborate on the circumstances of when this Emmanuel figure will be born. And he starts to talk about the immediate future within the Middle East region and its connection to the sign of Emmanuel. That there will be difficulty in the region. And the first subject to be dealt with are Israel or Judah's oppressors, Israel in Syria. And so the passage transitions into verses 15 and 16, and what it's starting to talk about are the early years of the life of this first Emmanuel figure and the judgment that will fall upon Israel and Syria, and later for Judah. So let's look at it. Verse 15. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. When Emmanuel is just a child... He will eat curds and honey. Now, when the Israelites are on their journey to the promised land, it's often referred to as a land flowing with milk and honey. And that's seen as a good thing. But in this passage, the curds and honey seems to be a negative for the young Emmanuel. The, the region will become so desolate, war will make the kingdom such a wasteland 
that they will be eating a nomadic diet. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Twice the prophet talks about a time associated with the boy refusing the evil and choosing the good. And the point is that this first amiable figure will be very young when all of this happens. It's sort of getting at this idea of it's before he's reached an age of moral accountability. And historically, that's all correct. Again, these events in our passage happen around the year 735 B.C. The kingdom of the northern kingdom of Israel is conquered in 722 B.C., about 13 years later. So the things that the Lord says will happen in the passage do come to pass in the very near future. End of verse 16, Isaiah throws down the gauntlet. The land whose kings you dread will be deserted. Ahaz is specifically being told of the desertion which will befall Syria and Israel. And that this this desertion is because they will be conquered and their land will be taken from them. It's a blessing that Syria and Israel will both be punished for their sin. But Judah has also been sinful. Ahaz, the king of Judah, has been sinful. And there will be consequences for them as well. I said this in the beginning, but many of the early chapters of the book of Isaiah are heavily focused on the sins of Judah. They're God's chosen people, but they're sinful. And Ahaz is sinful. And Ahaz has placed his trust in a pagan nation in Assyria for his hope and protection rather than in God. And there are consequences for that as well. And the rest of this passage is talking about the judgment of Judah. Very briefly, we'll go through these verses. Verse 17. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. When it says upon your father's house, it's a reference to the house of David who rules in Judah, the Davidic monarchy who ultimately leads to Christ is going to suffer for their sins. Then the text talks about the days, uh, the, the difficulty of the time matching when Ephraim departed from Judah. I touched on this last week, but it's referring to the split that happened between Judah and Israel, also known as Ephraim. So it's referring to the, basically the division, the civil war within Israel. And what this verse is saying is that there is a divine judgment that is coming upon Judah that will be an extremely difficult time of upheaval. Only like the worst previous time in their history. And the challenge that they will face, as verse 16 concludes, is the king of Assyria. 
the nation whom Ahaz has placed his hope in will become their oppressor. So often the things that we look to for freedom end up enslaving us. And the passage begins to talk about what will happen to Judah. Now, with Syria and Israel, annihilation is the fate of those kingdoms. But by the grace of God, it won't be quite as severe here for Judah, but they will still suffer. Verse 18. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. That verse is talking about the military oppression that Judah will face. It talks of troops as if they're swarms of bees and flies, numerous soldiers converging upon <coughs> Judah. All of the hiding places will be occupied by enemy forces. Verse 20, in that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. Another picture of what will happen talks of them being shaved. And what that's getting at is the total humiliation that Judah will experience at the hands of Assyria. Removing a person's hair is oftentimes a symbol for stripping away their identity. A third picture of the future of Judah, verses 21 and 22. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. Now that first might not seem so bad because it's talking about an abundance of milk. But given that everything else in this passage is a picture of judgment, I think that the point is more that there will be an abundance of food and people will have livestock because the population will be so decimated by the war. A final picture, verses 23 to 25. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns. But they will become a place where cattle were let loose and where sheep tread. That's a picture of the devastation that will befall the land. That the fertile ground will become briars and thorns. In the Old Testament, God talks of drought and waste coming upon farmland as divine judgment for Israel's disloyalty to the covenant. To give another example, Isaiah chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain, that they rain no rain upon it. 
Around 701 BC, so about 34, 35 years later, the Assyrians do lay siege upon Jerusalem. Now, they don't ultimately conquer the city. That would happen to another empire about a century and a half later. But for their sin, there was judgment upon Judah. I understand that these are difficult passages. There's a lot of history, a lot of context. It can be confusing that Judah's enemies are judged by God, but then Judah is also judged. One of the things that this passage shows us is the weight of sin. God does not take sin lightly. Anytime we act like sin doesn't matter or isn't a big deal, we are communicating a profound theological falsehood. Because God is deathly serious about sin. Judah is God's chosen people and God's promised land. Perhaps it can be tempting to wonder if they suffered too much. But rather the real question is always why God gives grace to anyone who doesn't deserve it. And that includes you and me. Something else that we see in this passage is that God is sovereign over the nations of the world. Both in our lives and in our dealings with the world, nothing happens outside the sovereignty of God. There are evil empires today. North Korea and China. Nations run by dictators. Countries that are torn apart by civil war and religious fanaticism. God sees all of that. That's true throughout the world and throughout the lives of individual people. All sin will be accounted for. It was either nailed to the cross, or you will spend eternity separated from God because of your sin. But there is no sin that is unnoticed to an all-knowing God. As we wind down this morning, I want to take us back to verse 14, to the Emmanuel prophecy. Isaiah gives the sign of Emmanuel. Again, we often know it in connection with the Gospel of Matthew in Christmas time. Carrie brought up an interesting observation about this chapter, Isaiah 7. Basically, everything going on in this chapter is about war. Judah being attacked, Judah's oppressors judged, Judah also being judged and suffering. This is not a quaint, yuletide passage. It's a passage about war where you're given one glimmer of light, the sign of Emmanuel, which means God with us. In spite of all the things going on in the world, God is still with his people. There will be difficulties for nations, but God is still faithful to his promises and his people. In our passage this morning, there will be judgment on Judah, but God is still with them. This is a passage about war, and the one hopeful message is a sign that was given to a king who didn't even want it. We live in a world that is so often at war. War between nations, war within ourselves, conflict within our families, struggles against our sinfulness. 
In the face of war and turmoil, Ahaz was offered a sign. He turned it down. The message that we need is not always the message that we want. In our sinful lives, we are given the message of the gospel. That you are separated and alienated from God due to sin. But that you can have forgiveness when you turn your hope away from yourself and place it in Jesus and what he did on the cross. There are difficulties in life. God is with us. Is he the Lord in whom you place your trust? Even as Christians, we are not insulated from the sin that is in the world and in our own lives. There are times of difficulty, but God is faithful. God never unjustly brings judgment. My point with these passages is not to destroy a favorite Christmas time verse for many, but I think there's value in knowing the original story. Because life is not the quaint Norman Rockwell painting that we so desperately want Christmas time to be. Life is hard. There is sin, disease, death. There's hurt and betrayal. There's war between nations, threats that we face. Yet in spite of that, an undeserving king, to him, God gave the sign of Emmanuel. And to an undeserving humanity, God gave the greater gift of Emmanuel, his son, God who came into the world, God with us. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for this day and for your Son, Lord. That in a world that was sinful, he came to bring light. He came to bring righteousness. He came to bring grace and forgiveness. Even though we didn't deserve it, while we were dead in sin. Lord, may we believe in that and trust in that. In Jesus' name, amen.